Welcome to the Heartland Free Sermon Podcast. We're so happy to have you. If you're a first-time listener and you'd like to get to know more about us as a church, click the link in the podcast description. And if you'd like to fill out our online connection card, you can do that there as well. Thanks for joining us, and let's get into a fantastic message. Well, we are on a uh, mini-series here, Presence Fit for a King. And I'm doing uh, three consecutive messages on the Magi, and we're looking at the three gifts that they gave uh, to the baby Jesus and the significance of those gifts. Uh, Gold, uh, representing uh, the royalty of Christ, and uh, frankincense, representing his deity, and the uh, action that is uh, required from us is to worship him. That's what we're going to look at today. And next week, we're going to talk about myrrh representing the humanity of Christ, that he was uh, uniquely born to die, uh, born with the very purpose of uh, dying on a cross for our sins. So uh, we're going to look at that again next week. Let's bow our heads in prayer as we prepare here today. Father, I just thank you. Thank you for the Magi. Thank you, Lord, for uh, just uh, the fascinating um, men that they were. And uh, thank you, Lord, for the example they are for us, uh, the uh, sacrifices they made uh, to make that long journey to visit a little baby. Uh, Guide us. Help us to um, uh, understand what we are to do as a response to hearing this very familiar story and processing it. And uh, Lord, we want to truly worship you. We ask in your name. Amen. Are you willing to take a calculated risk to serve God? This was the question that faced Dietrich Bonhoeffer July of 1939 as he weighed the choice of safety remaining in the U.S. or the likelihood of martyrdom if he returned to Germany. That previous April 20th, Dietrich had watched as his fellow pastors throughout Germany joined in the celebration of Hitler's 50th birthday. And on that day, every pastor in Germany was asked to take an oath. I swear that I will be loyal and obedient to Adolf Hitler, the leader of the German Reich and people. Sadly, most of the evangelical pastors who had resisted up until that time had caved to the pressure of the state. The handful of holdouts, including Dietrich, were marked as troublemakers. And then, like manna from heaven, a way of escape emerges for Dietrich. He's invited to teach a class in America, so he sails across the Atlantic and basks in the safety of a New York classroom. But now that class is ending, he's invited to continue his teaching into the fall, but his conscience is tormenting him with that feeling that he must return home. So in the beginning of July, he counts the cost and he boards the last ship to Germany before war breaks out. 
he is convinced there is no middle ground. To not actively oppose Hitler was to support him. He would not abandon his band of dissenters who had chosen to worship God alone no matter what. Two years earlier, Dietrich had written The Cost of Discipleship, and now he was ready to live it out. Are you ready to count the cost? This was the question the Magi wrestled with as they prepared to board their camels for a far-off land with no guarantees of anything. As I shared last week, they were likely aware of the Jewish prophecies of Daniel. They may have even come to faith in Yahweh, the God of Israel. But there were no sure bets. Were they interpreting the prophecies correctly? And how do you separate these Jewish teachings from the rumors, the legends, the conspiracies that seem to come and go no matter what? In the end, the Magi took the risk. They looked at this mysterious star in the sky and they chose to believe that the God who created the universe was leading them. So they boarded their camels and they left with enough treasure to make any group of pandits salivate. They would be like sitting ducks, vulnerable to attack. So they likely added sufficient escorts to the entourage to keep them safe. The Bible says they came for one reason, to worship. But what exactly does that mean? For many today, the word worship means nothing more than three songs, announcements, and a sermon. But in the Bible, the meaning goes much, much deeper. In Matthew chapter two, the word worship is used exactly three times. And each usage adds to the fullness of what it means to truly worship God. You see, real worship has three qualities. The first quality is a genuine fear of God. Matthew 2 begins with these words. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews. We saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Why did they come? To worship Jesus, the newborn king of the Jews. They came to worship. The Greek word is proskuneo. The, the word pros means to move towards someone, to approach them, and the word kaneo means to kiss. Literally, it means to come before someone and kiss the ground as a gesture of reverence. In reality, every culture shows respect in different ways. In Asia, you bow a lot. In Germany, you greet with a firm handshake and you refer to others as Mr. and Mrs. or in German, Herr and Frau. In England, the ladies curtsy before royalty. 
and you don't leave until you're excused, and you don't turn your back when you leave. When I was in school, we were taught manners. There were a lot of them, way more than an eight-year-old could remember. But I knew, do know that to this day, it does not feel right for me to preach without a tie on. I fear that in the next 20 minutes, we're going to have the rapture. I'm going to meet Mama in the sky, and she's going to say, where's your tie? (laughs) But let's face it. Outward displays of respect are of little value in God's eyes. The Bible says, 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. The heart is what's inside all of us. It's your soul. It's your mind, will, and emotions. Far more than anything that's going on outwardly is what's going on inwardly. You see, the heart of worshiping God is a sincere and a genuine fear of God. 14 times in the book of Proverbs alone, just one book, we're instructed to fear the Lord. In fact, Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Over and over we are instructed in the Hebrew, Yerat, Yahweh, fear the Lord. You will not get to first base in being a wise person without first fearing the Lord. And this same teaching extends into the New Testament. I counted at least a dozen times where the fear of God is mentioned, typically rendered as phobos kyrios, the fear of the Lord, phobos theos, the fear of God, in Revelation 14, 7, in 1 Peter 2, 17, in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, we are directly commanded as God's people to fear God. In Ephesians 5.21, we are directly commanded to fear Christ. The word phobos is a shaking in your boots type of fear, from which we get the English word phobia. Now in a world where you hear so much about homophobia and transphobia, what we need more than ever before is theo. Phobia, a fear of God. This is what drove the Magi over a thousand miles to bow down before a baby. This is what drove Dietrich Bonhoeffer to leave the comforts of New York City for a hornet's nest in Berlin. In America today, we tend to like the word respect more than the word fear. To respect someone's to admire them, to highly esteem them, to have regard, to have deference, and all of that is fine and good. All of that is part of worshiping God, but the true meaning of worship goes beyond respect, and it includes fear. I've been to the kingdom of Jordan on two occasions. Jordan, of course, borders Israel. Both times I was there, you could detect in the way that the tour guide expressed himself, 
that there was not only a genuine respect for the king, there was a reverent fear of the king because his life was in the hands of his king. Unlike England, which has a king with little authority, the king in Jordan is a true monarchy. The king's word is law. You live and work and breathe at the pleasure of the king. Now in America, we're accustomed to saying anything we want to about the president, and that's exactly what people do. But the kingdom of heaven does not work that way. The kingdom of heaven is a true monarchy. Every breath we take is at his pleasure. And that's why Jesus said, don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. This is why Dietrich Bonhoeffer was fearless when the Gestapo came knocking at his door. Long ago, he had decided in his heart that he would obey God rather than man. And this is why Dietrich had no problem in his book, Ethics, in challenging his fellow Germans. If necessary, you need to lie in order to protect others. And thank God, thousands of his fellow Christians did exactly that. They hid the Jews, they lied about their whereabouts. Is this not what Rahab did when she protected the Israelite spies? hiding them on her roof. And when the king of Jericho sent his men to her house, she lied, saying they had already left. But they hadn't. Now let's be clear. This is no excuse to lie when you feel like it. But it is a challenge to put your loyalty to God ahead of your loyalty to the state. There is a reason why Jesus said the first and the greatest commandment is to love God above anything else. That command supersedes all other commands. So the first quality of real worship is a genuine fear of God. The second quality is no pretension. If you want to know what pretension looks like, you need to look no further than verse 7, which says, Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, and he said, Go and make a careful search for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too can go and worship him. Worship him? Now, of course, we all know that Herod was full of baloney. He had no intention whatsoever of worshiping the baby Jesus. You see, that's what pretension means, to be full of baloney. More precisely, the dictionary defines pretension as hypocrisy, to be artificial, to be grandiose, to be pompous. It's the opposite of sincerity and humility. When my daughters were little, they loved to pretend. And they would pretend to make dinner, and they would pretend to get married, 
and they would pretend to be driving in the car and they would pretend to go shopping and each of them had a role to play. One was the mommy, one was the daddy, one was the baby, one was the big sister, and this could entertain them for hours. Now here's a question to consider. How much of this is going on when we worship God? How much of it is real and how much of it is just pretending? Quite honestly, I think there was a lot of that back in the 60s and 70s and 80s. At that time, it was very important to look like a God-fearing person. Whether you were or not was another story, but there was a feeling among many that you need to at least look the part. This was especially true if you were a business owner or a teacher or a politician or a police officer. It was just considered part of being a good citizen. Now that's no longer true today. But my guess is that there is still a lot of pretending going on, at least when it comes to public worship. Jesus said to the Pharisees, Matthew 15, 8, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts far from me. They worship in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. The Pharisees had so many rules, the ordinary person couldn't possibly keep track of them, let alone obey them. They had food rules, and they had cleanliness rules, and they had ceremonial rules, and they had Sabbath rules. And if truth be told, the Pharisees had set up a system to make themselves look spiritual on the outside, but inside, they were more corrupt than ever. And then Jesus came along, and he calls them on this like a hot knife cutting through butter. Jesus just cuts through all of the legalese to get to the heart of the matter. When Jesus came, it changed everything. The Bible says, therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. In other words, we don't need to worry about food laws. We don't need to worry about the cleanliness laws and the ceremonial laws and the Sabbath laws. Why? Because the Bible continues by saying this, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Our Sabbath rest is ultimately found in Christ. Now, a wise man is going to set aside one day a week to rest. Jesus said the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. A wise man is going to set aside one day a week as a special time to seek God, to worship God, and to realign his life with the word of God. But the Lord would rather have this arise from a desire to please God as opposed to a 
duty to please God. You see, when the Magi came to worship Jesus, they came out of desire, not duty. And they didn't care about impressing anybody. In fact, most of their peers back in Persia or Babylon, they thought they were crazy. The Magi didn't go to worship Jesus because their spouses nagged them. <laughs> they, they didn't go to worship Jesus because mama told them to. They didn't go to Jesus because grandma would be giving them, you know, the business. They didn't go to worship because dad said, if you're going to live under this roof, you're going to go to church, you're going to worship God, and you're going to like it. And the Magi didn't go to worship because the music was really good. They didn't go to worship because the preaching was good. They didn't go to worship because they might meet some cute girls there. There was absolutely no pretense. Their motives were as pure as the driven snow. Meanwhile, the motives of King Herod were just the opposite. He was blowing smoke every time he opened his mouth. In fact, at the very moment he's meeting with the Magi, it's likely that his servants and advisors were already plotting assassinations. If we find this baby king, we're going to take him out. Today, these same two groups, they're easy to identify. There are those who are pro-Christian, and there are those who are anti-Christian. But we all know that there is a third group. We could call them the mushy middle. Okay? They are those who have their feet firmly planted in midair. And if truth be told, they simply don't care. Some of them are like chameleons. They're with their Christian friends. They act like Christians. They're with their non-Christian friends. They act like non-Christians. Now let me direct you for a moment back to Matthew chapter 2. Do you see this third group, the mushy middle? I think we see them in verse 4. They're the chief priests and scribes. Now later on, they would be arch enemies of Jesus, but not at this point. Just stop and think about it. King Herod is summoning the religious leaders to a meeting at the palace, and he introduces them to the Magi, these guys that have traveled a thousand miles to meet a baby king, and they're asked where the Messiah is to be born, and they correctly answer, oh, he's gonna be born in Bethlehem, and the Magi talk about this star, and they set off for Bethlehem, and I want you to notice what the chief priests and scribes did. Nothing. Does that strike you as unusual? They did nothing. Didn't move a muscle. They didn't follow the Magi to Bethlehem. I mean, here you have these Gentile travelers that have come a thousand miles to meet a Jewish king, and meanwhile, the Jewish leaders... They just yawn, return to their previous activities. No one lifts a finger. 
It is shepherds that visit the baby Jesus. There is magi, Gentile travelers from a thousand miles away that visit the baby Jesus. But the Jewish leaders, the ones who knew the prophecies of the Old Testament like the back of their hand, they didn't even pretend to care. They didn't even pretend to worship. They simply did nothing. They were like the lukewarm church of Laodicea in Revelation 3.15, where Jesus says to them, you know, guys, I wish you were either hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. So the second quality of real worship is no pretension. Let's move to the third quality of real worship, which is true adoration. The third time we see the word worship in Matthew 2 is in verse 11. As the Magi approach the newborn king of the Jews, it says, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. Have you ever set out on a long trip and you've spent a lot of money and you've used up all your vacation time and you made all of these sacrifices to make it work and then you get there and it's either a wow or it's a yawn. <laughs> it's either a thrill or it's a disappointment. I remember taking a trip out west with our daughters. I was reading a book about Lewis and Clark. Every five miles we'd stop and I'd run up to some cave where Lewis and Clark had slept. Or some waterfall where Lewis and Clark had portaged. Or some campsite where Lewis and Clark got attacked by Indians. And it was so exciting to one of us. <laughs> the rest of the gang couldn't have cared less. You ever had that experience? <laughs> now, for the vast majority of the people, the birth of the baby Jesus, no big deal. Just one more little baby in this quiet little village out in the middle of nowhere. But the Magi were not disappointed. To the contrary, verse 9 says, they're overjoyed. They're going, wow, wow. They instantly knew this is big. They treated it as the biggest event that has ever happened on planet Earth. And you know what? They were right. How they knew this is a guess. Were they aware of the prophecies of the Jewish prophets in, in particular? Did they recognize the baby as the Messiah Prince that Daniel had spoken of when he was in Persia, Babylon? Prophesied of this Messiah Prince coming, Daniel 9, 25? Or did the creator of the universe simply reveal this to the Magi in a vision or dream? All we know is that they were convinced 
This is not an ordinary baby. Whether they recognized him as God in the flesh or not, we don't really know, but that's who he was and that's who he is. The worship of the Magi, it segued now from fear and respect into adoration. They adored this baby. And that's the way we should worship too. When you come to know Jesus, your respect and your fear, they should not disappear, but they should segue into adoration and love. Here's how Romans 8.15 puts it. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. I close with this. The Magi brought Jesus three gifts. Gold, representing his royalty. Frankincense, representing his deity. And myrrh, representing his humanity. Frankincense was a costly, beautiful smelling incense that was used only for the most special of occasions. It was used in the grain offering at the tabernacle and the temple, according to Leviticus chapter two. It was used in royal processions, according to Song of Solomon three. Sometimes it was used in weddings, but only if the families were very wealthy. The great church father Origen pointed out that frankincense was the incense of deity. In the Old Testament, it was stored in a special chamber in front of the temple it was sprinkled on certain offerings as a symbol of the people's desire to please the Lord. When the Magi came to worship God, they brought their best. All throughout the Old Testament, the Jewish people were taught this, to bring their best. They were to bring their first fruits. They were to bring their choicest animals, ones with no spots, no blemishes. They brought their best, not because God needed it, but because they needed it. Whatever that looks like for you today, I wanna challenge you this Christmas season to bring Jesus your best, your most sincere worship, your heartfelt adoration, and your sacrificial gifts. Don't be like Herod, who opposed Jesus. Don't be like the chief priests and scribes, who just yawned, didn't care. Instead, be like the Magi, who brought their best. Will you do that? 